Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Team Human is a labor of love. You can get the ad-free version as well as access to our live events, Discord server, and monthly Team Human salons by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an opportunity to interrogate the past for our possible futures, evaluate our relationship to our fellow species, and challenge the domestication of everything, including ourselves. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, transdisciplinary artist and biohacker Heather Dewey Hagborg. Why does it feel like there is no more future? I mean, for obvious reasons in terms of threats like climate change. But what is it that has happened in technology that it really feels like it's done? Heather, who's probably best known for creating possible portraits of Chelsea Manning from her DNA, is going to share her latest work on future pigs and hybrids. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things, especially pigs, I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Listening to Hybrid, an interspecies opera, it's part of a new project by Heather Dewey Hagborg, which takes us on a journey from today's cutting-edge genetic engineering to the very origins of pig domestication 10 millennia ago, and then back to the wild boars still inhabiting our forests. It's an intimate and sometimes heartbreaking account of the interspecies relationship at the heart of the science of xenotransplantation, the genetic engineering of pigs to supply human hearts. 
It's all part of an art project that includes memorial sculptures to the pigs sacrificed in the research, as well as speculative components of potential future pigs. I got to see and touch all this. Well, I probably wasn't supposed to touch anything, but it was all at the Fridman Gallery in New York when her show was up. But you can still see a lot of it online at DeweyHagborg.com. The link's in the show notes. I'm honored and humbled to say Heather was a student of mine at NYU's Interactive Telecommunications Program, maybe 20 years ago, where she always challenged my understanding of what art could and shouldn't be. She went on to do speculative experiments in biohacking, like collecting samples of DNA off the hand poles on New York subways and then using computer modeling to generate masks of what the people looked like. She created a forensic DNA phenotype portrait of surveillance tech whistleblower Chelsea Manning, and she made adversarial self-portraits that kind of probed the structure of facial recognition systems. Heather's work is both high-tech and highly human, and we took some time together to consider the alienating effects of the human effort to domesticate our reality, as well as how to retrieve our sweet humanity to inform our highly engineered futures. So here's Heather Dewey Hagborg. So there's so much I want to talk about. You've got this great new show in New York right now. What is it called? Hybrid? No. It's called Hybrid and Interspecies Opera. Hybrid colon. Hybrid colon. An interspecies opera, which is right now a collection of of 3D printed pigs and pig parts and theoretical future pigs and some kind of video 3D animated pigs that are, for me, commenting on what we're doing to the pig now and in yeah. the future. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, it is, so it is kind of exactly what the title says. So it is a short video opera that is about xenotransplantation. So it's about genetic engineering of pigs to have human compatible organs. And then it's also about this long history between the human and the pig. So the history of domestication. And it's also about the future of what that might look like, like what what are we doing to pigs now and how might they look, you know, some decades from now. And it's fun because, I mean, obviously it's not just about pigs, even though it is pigs, because, I mean, it's about us and everything else. And I mean, because we're doing what we're doing at pigs, we're doing to ourselves. And I'm sure very soon we'll be doing to our kids so they're better in math or soccer or whatever they're supposed to be good at. But the beauty of it for me is this is like, these are 3D printed clay pig components right right the components for <laughs> assembling different possible pigs yeah absolutely so the process behind that was so I, I was working on the film for a long time over covid i was having these interviews with scientists and archaeologists and digging into this question about whether the new gene editing technology is some kind of continuation with 10 millennia of breeding or whether it's something radically new So I started having these conversations, and then I was working with the words of the scientists and kind of turned those into these poems that then turned into a libretto that then ultimately is sung in the opera. And I eventually, despite COVID and everything, it was really difficult, but eventually I got access to the labs where they're doing the work. I was able to film the pigs, to film the scientists, to film the labs, you know, the actual, like, uh, manipulation of the embryos, this kind of thing. And after going through all of that and starting to assemble the film and looking at all of the the science and the history and everything, I felt like there was still something missing. And that was another layer of artistic practice that would connect it to me, to my history of, for example, working with sculpture, with 3D printing, and to, in a way, create an aspect of it that would be like a tribute for the pigs. And so that led me to thinking about doing some kind of ritual that would conclude the film that would elevate the the pigs, but also connect them back with that long history. So connect them back to their origins in the wild boar. And that's when I came across this 3D scan of a sculpture of a wild boar, this Bronze Age sculpture that had been put online by a museum called the Hunt Museum in Ireland. And they had, you know, put it out there totally open, open, free, you know, no IP constraints, nothing like that. 
And I realized that there were these new 3D printing machines that have become available for working with ceramics. You know, I think a lot of us have seen these like 3D printed houses, things like that, this work with cement. And then I became really intrigued by the possibility of, of actually 3D printing with raw clay that could then be fired. And so long story short, I ended up experimenting with that, um, fabricating that 3D scan of the ancient sculpture with the new technology, and then finalizing those in this return to the earth of the pit fire that then puts together really the ancient and the very new. I know. And that was really cool. I mean, first, so you 3D printed with clay in the 3D printer. Did the people who run the 3D printer get upset that you might fuck up their 3D printer by putting clay <laughs> through its extruding so things? I was the one running the printer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it is a special printer that only prints clay. Okay. So it's very similar. It's the same basic structure as the ones that do plastic, but it is a special variant of that, basically, that it's only doing very wet clay kind of right. bo- uh, body. Because you look at the video of it, and it, it looks a little bit... I mean, most 3D printing, it looks really precise, and mm. this looks a little bit more like a kind of soft ice cream cone. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's very it, messy. The way it builds. Yeah, it's very messy. It's very physical work. It's this kind of thing where I work on that all day and it's a nice contrast to just sitting in front of the computer yeah. definitely but you know it's like really exhausting because you're you're kneading this clay or trying to get all this water into the clay and then you're like cramming it into these tubes right <laughs> lifting taking these machines apart and wrenching them back right. together it's and not as easy as just making homemade pasta or something it's really <laughs> yeah really, it's really different than a lot of the work i've done that is yeah at least 98% digital work. And then the the actual, the fire pit was really cool. So it's like you printed a bunch of these little pigs, mm-hmm. like hand size, yeah. like, you know, like two fists per pig kind <laughs> of. That's how big they are out of clay and stick them in this pit in the sand and then all this fire. And you're looking at these pigs getting, instead of fired in a kiln, they're getting fired like in the earth. And for me, it was like, I can't even say it right, but fiend to sequel kind of thing, like like the end of this cycle that the pig has come on such a journey. Like there's the original wild boar from the prehistoric whenever, Mm -hmm. and it evolved itself. And then humans evolved through species stuff and mating pigs to get the, you know, little fat pink pigs that you want to eat or whatever, or work pigs. I don't know what else they, they, right. Biomedical pigs. (laughs) Right. Biomedical, (laughs) but then genetically altered pigs and then genetically altered pigs and then 3d printed pigs which is like they've been through this whole cyber they've been abstracted into code and then made back in and then by burning them back in the ground it's like and it's clay you're kind of you're you're returning them you're you're reuniting them with both their biological and their their geological origin i mean it was like almost like this it was a kind of a prayer to the pig to me in a way yeah it is yeah absolutely i love that interpretation and the idea of it being this prayer for the pig is is right on i mean that's exactly what i was thinking about was what can i do to commemorate these creatures whose lives were taken you know clearly without their permission for this potentially life-saving human life-saving technology Right. And it's funny because I was thinking, I've been reading uh, Tyson Yunkaporta's book. He's a uh, He's been on this podcast a couple of times, a, a native Australian and a indigenous Aboriginal scholar as well. And he's been writing about how substances have memory. So, you know, if you're going to carve a boomerang out of a certain kind of wood, there's the spirit of the tree and what happened to that tree is in that piece of wood. Or you take a piece of steel that's been used as a weapon, you can melt it down, but it will always have that weapon spirit in it unless you let it rust completely, oxidize and turn mm-hmm. back into soil, back in, and then extrude it again. Then at least it's it's been totally recycled. And to take this, even this clay that came out of the ground and then went all the way through computers and stuff, it's like, bring it back to the ground. It purifies it. It baptizes it. It, it lets it kind of return to its its spirit again. 
Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and any ceramicist will tell you about the memory in in clay because <laughs> that's really something that people struggle with, I think, on a daily basis where you see that immediately when it starts printing, for example, which is really beautiful because the way that it prints, it's almost like a giant coil, like one incredibly tiny coil that goes around and around and around. So it is, again, like this very ancient method of, of production, but done in this way that no human hand could ever make a coil that tiny. But what you see is, if for whatever reason, when one layer lies down on top of the previous one, for example, sometimes there's a tiny air bubble, or sometimes, for example, someone slams the door, and then, you know, it messes it up, just, but just like a tiny, tiny bit that you can hardly even see. But once it starts to dry, you can see that separation or that tiny crack that comes, and then no amount of smoothing it will ever make that go away. I mean, you just have to start over again, mush the clay up completely, like re-homogenize the particles and, and start over, otherwise that, that structure will be there forever. It's because, I mean, in, in that way, it's certainly in the world of creation, making stuff and manufacture, time is always linear. It's always going to move in one direction. And it's like you've got to do, oddly enough, you almost have to do an artistic or spiritual intervention in order to cycle, in order mm. <laughs> to get it circular again. Yeah. You know, because even, you know, in your show, you've got this the timeline. Right. There's the timeline of the pig. Of course, the timeline of the evolution of the pig is going to go in one direction. You know? <laughs> right, right. It's, but like you say, I mean, it could have been a much more complicated diagram that certainly would have lots of branches coming off of it. So the timeline was just one clearly reductionist way of simplifying that history and, and marking just a few of the milestones along the way. Basically, I wanted to get people to kind of experience that history as they walked into the into the gallery that they kind of start mm -hmm. at this beginning, you know, 90 million years ago, the Boreo-Eutherian, this most recent common ancestor between the human and the pig, and that you're kind of from the beginning thinking in this historical mindset about this relationship between the two of us and that we started out as the same organism. You know, if you go far right. enough back, we They're were the cousins. same. Exactly. And then we branched, we branched off and Homo sapiens are pretty recent right. comparatively. So it's basically this experience of time as you walk through the space. But any one of those milestones. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I mean, there's so much that's hidden inside of there. There's so many stories and so many branches. And then sometimes also things loop back. So I think, you know, I was telling you when you were in the exhibition about how there's also this ghost population. So the, the European pigs that had branched off of the Anatolian domesticated pigs then also rebred with the wild boars, but also bred with some kind of so-called ghost population. The scientists don't really know what pig that was, but they know that there was some pig, <laughs> some unknown genetic kind of pig that was rebred with. So it's a complex story with these kind of recursive aspects to it as well. They could be extraterrestrial pigs. You know how they say that Adam and Eve, like they mated with some kind of extraterrestrials, and that's what made you know apes go to to humans. And there's I did some whole not, theory. I, I don't yeah, know. I forgot that. what they are. These big tall, big tall aliens or something. That these were the alien pigs that came with the with, for the pigs. And that makes sense, and that's why you're not allowed to eat pigs in so many religions because they're. They got magic souls or something. That's the other thing. Pigs are special. Mm -hmm. People knew. Arabs knew. Yeah. Jews knew. Yeah. They're like, look at their little faces. And how social they are, you know, and how 
relatively quickly we were able to create some kind of relationship with them. I mean, I, I definitely don't want to call it a symbiotic relationship, but <laughs> a, a relationship where we could get rid of our extra waste and the pigs oh. could get food. So they had a reliable food source. We got rid of our waste and then we got a reliable food source in them <laughs> and eating right. them. And a forensics defying way of getting rid of uh, your crime victims. Yes, <laughs> you just eat them completely. And from like like watching my westerns, you know, the, they always bring the body to the pig farmer to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. I mean, talk about forensics. Uh, mm-hmm. Your work over time. I mean, what kind of put you on the pop map of you know people like me? If I hadn't known you before, would have been the DNA project where from the pedestrian view that you took samples off the New York subways of DNA that just happened to be lying around on whatever the, the, <laughs> the, po- the poles and the seats and whatever. And then basically analyze the DNA in them to figure out what to theorize what those people whose DNA came from what they look like and then made these masks yeah. of them. And that kind of freaked everybody out on so many different levels. Yeah, yeah, it did. And it was supposed to. I mean, the idea is not that it's like a suggestion. <laughs> it's not a recommendation like to start collecting DNA and predicting things about people from it or surveilling them in different ways. But it was a warning. And I think it was a warning that was very effective. And I think back on it a lot about kind of what were the aspects that were effective And one of the things that's complicated about that piece is that there is a reduction inherent in that work, which is that interpreting the DNA, looking at very few data points, and then putting out this singular face to represent what that person might look like. And so, of course, that's a lie. It's not. So you couldn't, with their DNA, figure out close enough to identify them at an airport. No, no, (laughs) definitely not. You know, but as a kind of tactical intervention to draw attention to the risks of surveillance and to make people aware that it was becoming easier to analyze people's DNA and to learn about them and to learn all kinds of things about them, the face becomes this index to more personal information even, you know, the things that we might really not want anyone to know about our disease risks, for example. And so I hoped at the time that even though there was a, all this subjectivity that was behind that choice of that one portrait to represent the person, that that would do the service of bringing awareness, of making people think about the privacy, the surveillance risks, things like this. And I think it was very effective in that. But at the same time, it is, it's a reductionist thing. I mean, so you can always, I think, criticize the work in that way. And that is then really what I did in my works afterward was tell a more complicated story. So begin to show, well, you know, it's not just one portrait you can predict of someone from their DNA, but you could have two. And that was the first work I did with Chelsea Manning. First, we presented two possible portraits of her, and we played there with the sex gender parameter and putting forward, you know, one face that was gender neutral and one face that was parameterized female mm-hmm. and then ultimately to celebrate her release from prison we we put together 30 different portraits of her from her dna to really show the the vastness of that space of probability and how incredibly different you could look well, just based on your the dna vastness data. of the space of possibility yeah. i mean which is sort of the it's sort of taking the same thing and going the opposite direction where one is they they're going to find your DNA and then narrow it down to you and the cuffs are going on and you're going down to Guantanamo, right? And here's the person who was in Guantanamo or wherever they put Chelsea. They put her in some horrible... Yeah, in Fort Worth. Fort Worth military prison thing, getting released and saying, yes, but the DNA, it's one thing, but look at all of these possible realizations of it and through Mm -hmm. the time of your life you are not bound to a particular identity because of what this mathematical thing says you can be as free as chelsea right who's you know (laughs) absolutely and i think that that becomes all the more pressing with attempts to predict behavior this is where we get into i think the most the most creepy and disturbing things are these efforts to predict what someone's personality might be like or what their future behavior might be based on their DNA. And that's actually the direction that I'm working for a new project that will 
something of it will appear this uh, spring, so spring 2024, that's looking at attempts to predict violence or aggression from DNA and how that's entered into the criminal justice system already. You mean in order to go, oh, this guy, look at his DNA, he's likely to go kill people, let's keep him in jail longer. So the way it has come up now mostly is in regard to mitigation phase of sentencing. So if someone is convicted, for example, of murder, it has entered in as an attempt to say, for example, that they might not have been able to make a choice about committing that act so that they would be less responsible for that act. But it is a very double-edged argument because it's also bringing in the idea that they might continue to perform, right. you know, but it's been used acts. like to get them off. So it'd be like, oh, look, look at Donald Trump's DNA has like as if it would have made him do it in it. So right, it makes him an asshole. Right. right, exactly. I mean, so it has, I think, mostly entered in that context. But right. the problem is that it's been used, that it's been flipped by the prosecution to say. You know, well, this person was always inherently dangerous, so we can't possibly allow them, not only that we don't allow them to leave prison. I mean, that would be the humanistic ideal that we say, well, okay, they serve some decades and then they can go. But no, I mean, that they actually, that they kill these people. I mean, that these are people that are facing the death penalty, right. which is outlawed in 111 countries around the world. Yeah, well, except us and... And like Saudi Arabia or something. 50 yeah. other places, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to America. Exactly. What a weird, weird place. Yeah, and then you did these other ones that I thought were the weirdest of all of it was this spray <laughs> that you could put on so that your DNA won't, which is like the perfect thing to do after the Subway DNA paranoia one was, oh, don't worry, here's a spray you can put on yourself and then none of your DNA is going to shed or it's going to, the DNA that does shed is going to be so corrupted by this spray that you don't have to worry about leaving forensic evidence behind. That was a social practice thought experiment, right? Or did that stuff actually do it? No, it works. It works. Oh, it it's just it's just not that practical to use it all the time. So, but, but it raises do, a lot of questions. If I'm going to rob a bank, shouldn't I? You like, could bring your DNA spray. Yeah. And would it work? Would it like? And I could do unpick the lock, and it wouldn't see me on there. I mean, it doesn't not work. <laughs> yeah, the, it's somewhat of, <laughs> effective, but it may not be guaranteed effective. I, definitely, it's not guaranteed. Right. <laughs> but um, one of the publications that that posted, you know, wrote an article about that project Invisible when I made it. Indeed, said that it was the product I made to protect you from me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. from me going around and snooping in people's DNA and so on. But there are, I mean, I think what that project was about for me from the academic research side of things was the reading that I'd done into the idea of DNA as being positioned as this gold standard. And it's fair in the sense that DNA is much better science than the rest of forensics, which is mostly made up and totally inaccurate. So the, the DNA science is much better than the rest of it. But because the other stuff was so bad, DNA got held up as being this like perfect, you know, answer to everything. Right. And the fact is that it has its weaknesses. And it isn't always a total, it isn't always this silver bullet in answering questions about, you know, what happened or who did something. And one of those, one of the places where these inconsistencies enter in is precisely in DNA mixtures. And so the invisible spray was about creating these mixtures, which is quite easy to do. I mean, if you and any friends get together and you all spit in a cup, I mean, there you have a DNA mixture. Uh -huh. you know, so it's accessible in a DIY way as well. But you can also get high tech about it and have extracted DNA from hundreds of different sources, which is in the what's in the invisible spray. Oh, so it just it camouflages you and all these other peoples. Exactly. It's an obfuscation spray. And that's the thing that is the, the hardest for the forensic science to differentiate. It's great. It reminds me of, uh, we both worked with this guy, Mushan, who did, what was it called? Ad nauseum. It was a browser plugin that would uh, kind of, well, it would hide all the ads from you. It was an ad blocker. But the way the ad blocker worked is it would click on every ad on the thing. <laughs> so it was like, rather than try to hide you, it just... 
if you click on everything and they know nothing about you anymore. So it was sort of that. It's sort of you, you overload with, with data rather than try to hide the data. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great project. And it's fun. And it's funny. And I, I have nothing, just so you know, I have nothing against the arts or money being spent on the arts. I get every couple of years, I get this envelope from the MacArthur Foundation, which makes me think that, oh, my God, because it's all like typed and nice with a stamp that I'm like going to win. And I open it up and they're always like, who would you nominate? They always want me to nominate. And I always nominate you just so you know, because <laughs> they say, you know, they want Aww. someone, someone, you know, young and brilliant and, and, and your work. I figure it's kind of the work that, and I mean this in a happy way, that needs a MacArthur because it's like, it's slightly obscure to like the regular public, but you get one of those and they're like, oh, who is she? What is this stuff? You know, and I just think it would be nice. But also it would give you billions of dollars or whatever. I mean, the funding question is always difficult. Yeah. I mean, when you're making work that is critical, that is not the easiest to commercialize, it stands in a weird place where it can be hard to get funding. I mean, it's something that I spend on more time than I wish I did working on trying to get the money for things. And you deserve the money for things, but then the but comes in is like, because I always think about this with my own work. It's like, I was going to go, you know, try to do a play at the public and then looking and the budgets of doing a play at the public. It's like, you can't get out of there for half a million dollars before oh, you're done, you know, whatever yeah. you do. And then I start thinking about how dare I spend half a million mm. dollars on something because there's starving babies and, and yeah. all that. So uh, I'm interested in, and once I remember you you writing a paper mm -hmm. or and it was basically saying that, that art must eschew capitalism yes art must <laughs> yes. eschew capitalism <laughs> that you can't that it's got to be then i'm thinking like bali or something it all has to be free and everyone's an artist and so how do you <laughs> think about sort of the the role of particularly the tactical artist which is what i see you as doing tactical art or what we call social practice art as activism how does that fit into like kind of economics and what yeah. is it sort of moral standing yeah, yeah. This is such a good question. And it's something that I'm struggling with all the time. Because there's no great answer for how to do it. But there's kind of the two opposite poles. And then what I do, which is kind of this scrappy thing that's in between. <laughs> so, you know, there's the traditional way of making objects that can be easily sold. So or not easily, it's not easy for anyone, I think, but, you know, making objects that can be sold. So traditionally, painting is the number one best selling visual art right. form. Um, it's what, most of what's sold in the art market are paintings. And then a few sculptures as well. So there's painting and sculpture. And then came this alternative that kind of comes out of conceptual art, but develops very much into its own thing also with media art, which is artists that have a teaching position and use that to support themselves to pay the bills so that they're free to make whatever kind of art that they want. And what I do is kind of, I make, sometimes I make objects, they're not necessarily the easiest selling objects, you know, but they're the kind of things that once in a while museums buy them, for example, or occasionally collectors want them. Um, but, you know, that's a pretty small part of kind of what gets me by. So it's mostly about kind of pastiching other things together, like maybe artist talks, for example, fees from exhibitions. So I, I do a lot of loans to museums and to art spaces. And usually they pay at least some kind of minimal fee for that. And then sometimes I'll teach. So like I'll have years where I teach full time and then years where I take a break from teaching. And then sometimes I'll teach, you know, adjunct for this or that. And so I'm kind of scrapping all those things together. And then I'm always also trying to apply for different kinds of grants. But that brings in this whole another level of the question about where your money comes from and who you're accountable to. Right. You know, so if you're taking money from a biotech company, you know, obviously that's going to limit your discourse around what you can say most of the time. If you take money from a government grant, that can also limit the discourse in a different kind of way. I mean, more in the way of selection bias, you know, in terms of who gets chosen for the grants, like certain kinds of expression are privileged in those choices. And, and so there's always a trade-off. So it's really difficult. I wish that I had as, as simple and clear-cut a position as I did however long ago that was, 15 years ago yeah. or more when I wrote that paper. So I do feel like my view is a bit more complicated than that. But on the other hand, it was also accurate. I mean, it's true, of course, that as soon as you 
take money for your creative output, it is compromised in some way. And even though now I take money for my creative <laughs> output, I know that it, it is compromised and I try to navigate those compromises in a way that can still allow me to be authentic to what I think is important to say. Because your stuff's not, not directly at least, like some artists, it's not a direct critique of capitalism. You're not doing... No, capitalism isn't so much the subject of the art. Right. You know, I like to focus on these questions that are a bit more obscure. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like there's a lot of people out there critiquing capitalism. It's really important. I totally support it. But I don't feel like they need my voice necessarily to be the one making that art. It's kind of like with, with climate change. It's really important work. But I think that what I have to contribute is calling attention to lesser known discourses and like emerging threats in technology. This is just because it's an area that I have some kind of weird expertise in. And so I feel like I feel like it's my duty to to bring attention to the things that I see. I mean, this is interesting because um, I mean, you bring up kind of almost specific your your artworks are almost like movies in that there's implied scenarios like the danger of the DNA is they're going to know who you are or know what you look like or they're going to do this or, you know, the, the woman in the lab coat selling you the spray or the... Mm -hmm. And it, for me, it's always been the digitization itself. In other words, just... But I, I, but it's not... That's why it's not art. That's why I guess it's rhetoric is to say, you know, yeah, I am not a number. I am not my <laughs> DNA. You know, the 23 and me, that is not you. That is a, a, a number. And I mm -hmm. can say it and, and shout it, which is fine. And it's, it's good. true. And it's I mean, true. It's true. It's absolutely true. And I think even the strongest genetic reductionists still would say that your DNA is only 30% of who you are, of who you become. You know, and the rest of that is the environment and then the interaction between that. That's this epigenetic layer that's still very much beginning to be really understood. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's DNA. It's just a set of potentials. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it can, and it can change, which is people are realizing now. Right. It's like, oh, fuck. Well, and we will be able to change it ourselves. I mean, we have, we are already able to do that. I mean, so the CRISPR kind of therapeutic technologies are already developed. So that's a growing field. And then, as we alluded to earlier, also the kind of like potential for gene editing on the embryo level is definitely close at hand. And when you look at those, I mean, it's weird. I'm, maybe I've just been so doomsday-ish since that that book on the apocalypse bunker billionaire people but i'm finding it so hard to cast into a fictional future at all because it's like i mean are we going to make it to next week much less you know next yeah. century that is a, such an interesting question like why does it feel like there is no more future i mean for obvious reasons in terms of threats like climate change but what is it that has happened in technology that it really feels like it's done? I know. I know. It's not like quite Francis Fukuyama's end of history thing. It's different. It's a little closer to my own kind of present shock thing mm -hmm. that history and the future have, have condensed somehow into this, this all, you know, everything all at once kind of a moment. But it doesn't feel like Buddhism at all. <laughs> I mean, it feels very hopeless. Yeah. It feels very hopeless and powerless, and it's really hard to find any kind of optimism, I think, for technology in the yeah. future at this point. I mean, it's weird. And, and, you know, I've been emotional lately, partly because of the the situation in Israel or whatever. It's yeah. brought, made me more emotional. But, you know, I was, I was waiting for someone in the gallery while the movie was playing. It's like, what, 30-minute movie? Mm -hmm. And I watched it, I don't know, four or five times. And when it came to this moment where there's four or five pigs in a corner and then this one pig kind of looks up kind of almost at the camera like as if what's going on <laughs> and then back in and I started weeping mm. when the pig did that and I don't even know why I did. It's very emotional film actually. I mean, I think you can watch the film in so many different ways and depending on what state you're in and how open you are to connecting with the creatures, I mean, you know the tragedy that is awaiting them. 
And even if they are treated really well for pigs in that situation and cared for by the vets, as you, as you also see in the film, you know, the vet really cares for the pigs too. But you still know that their fate is to be killed and to have their organs taken. I mean, so it is, it is devastating. I think that's you allowing yourself to have a real response to the material. Right. Because he was so innocent, or she. Yeah. And then she also feels like the model for, you have a kind of future pig. Right. This video, it's like, and I want the, I want a sculpture of that pig. I want that pig 3D printed. <laughs> it's this pig that's like sort of the future. It's almost like, you know how they made dogs have faces, you know, to make them more like friendly, like little pug dogs and stuff. They move their eyes closer yeah. together and give them. It's like this pig is sort of slightly like a quarter of the way towards human. Yes, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So in the installation, you see the different directions of the future pig. And those are based on kind of two slash three different branches. And so the one you're talking about, this is the even more human pig. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of imagining that we take the, the pigs that have been engineered for xenotransplantation that are already, you know, more human in that sense. Because you want their hearts to be more like a human heart exactly. for transplant, right? Exactly. And one of the scientists I talked to literally said, this is a humanized pig. And so I imagine pushing that one step further. And actually, when I started first thinking about doing something on this topic, my original impulse was, could I get into the lab? And could I make the pig not just internally be closer to the human, but could I make it also look more human, maybe create some of that empathetic connection that I think you're seeing in that pig? And I thought I could do that by gene editing basically the snout to get smaller. Mm -hmm. And the really interesting thing was that once I started doing the research and talked to one of the veterinary scientists working with the pigs, he said that that was exactly what happened when we started domesticating pigs. Basically, that through the domestication process and then through the genetic engineering process, that is that, that the snout has receded in exactly that way. So I thought that was so interesting that this thing that I actually wanted to do as a kind of interventionist thing was actually coming along for the ride with the other genetic manipulation that we were doing through selective breeding and then through active breeding and genetic programs. Mm. But you're, I don't know how to say, it. are you, it's such a bad question to ask, but are you, <laughs> are you hopeful? Are you, I mean, you must be hopeful because you are doing tactical artistic interventions. You are not, just delivering palliative care to the end of human civilization, right? There's a, a there's an intervention here. It is a really hard time to feel hopeful, but I do think I am generally hopeful. I mean, I do feel like the trend of young people is to be more caring for the public, more open to caring for people, more inclined toward social care. Hmm. That is what I see, at least, and, and also in terms of the, the numbers, you know, that, that younger people are more likely to vote for Democrats or progressives and things like this, and not just in the United States. So I do feel like there is reason for hope, and the young people that I interact with, of course, that's a biased sample, but they are so impressive in terms of how accepting they are of difference and how dedicated they are to to this mission of really making sure that that everyone is taken care of in a socialist way. Mm. And so that gives me hope. But definitely I don't see much hope coming from technology. <laughs> but that's the interesting thing that everyone has kind of realized that now. I mean, that's yeah. really changed over the decades that we've known each other where... And when I met you, you were really trying to push people towards thinking more critically about technology, which I bought into completely. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was hard because it was right at the beginning of Web 2.0. And there was so much, you know, this like next wave of utopianism that came with that. And and but now it's the, the whole conversation has turned so much and it's pretty rare, at least that I see an article in the like mainstream news that is in any way enthusiastic about technology. 
Right. It's almost, you know, since you know, people realized that social media was algorithmic, since that got public through, I guess, Shoshana Zuboff. And the facial recognition yeah. stuff, you know, and now with AI, I mean, it's just, it's a disaster. Yeah, but you were kind of there. I remember you did an event with Barry Sheck. Remember him? The O.J. Simpson lawyer, who everyone hated because he was the one who said this DNA evidence is bullshit. It wasn't done right. It's not collected right. It's not rigorous. I think you were on a panel with him at something. I met him, and I was like, dude... This is like, people are freaking out that you you were like on OJ's mm. side. And he's like, I wasn't on OJ's side. I'm on humanity's side against this, this improv. It's going to, it's going to bite you in the ass if we yeah. don't do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. So even then that was like the original sort of tech, anti-human tech. There's a problem here kind of moment. Yeah. And the, and the fact of the matter is that there were real problems with the evidence in that case. I mean, whatever you think about all of that politically, I would say that if I was on the jury, I would have had to say that I, I couldn't say without reasonable doubt that he was guilty when the police so much mishandled the evidence, when it was so clear that things were racist and biased from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, that was still part of the sort of the Rodney King moment, which was another technology moment. You know, That's but true. that was the optimistic technology moment, not that Rodney King getting right. beaten nearly to death by that cops was seeing up. things, that visibility was going right. to bring some kind of liberation. And we all thought that. It was sort yeah. of new media technology will expose. and But it turned into the surveillance Foucault other thing. Yeah. I was really involved with indie media in that moment, you know, that like 2004 moment Mm -hmm. where, you know, it was just before, right at the beginning of YouTube, but also before YouTube. And um, we had these radio stations and then people could post videos. There was all the Iraq war protests. And it was kind of this moment that felt very optimistic that some kind of community-based technology was going to bring real accountability, to bring truth, all of these things. And now, of course, we've seen the opposite of that in how it can, the very same technologies basically can lead to the most horrible disinformation and the opposite of what we had hoped would come. But it's interesting. I mean, looking back to say, oh, we were pro-tech and now we're anti-tech. It's like not, you know, actually thinking about it. We were studying under Red Burns at Mm -hmm. the Interactive Telecommunications Program at NYU, which was started by Red Burns. Around the the Sony Porta Pack, right? It was around the invention of half inch black and white video that was portable enough for people to go and make their own video. It was media that we were celebrating, really more. I didn't really care about digital tech or mm. programming so much as, like you're saying, indie media, independent, bottom up media, and people telling yeah. their stories. Yeah. I mean, I think also when you're coming at things from an activist perspective and you're thinking about like, how can we use these technologies to further our mission? Sometimes you miss the threat that's there. Right. That was always there. I mean, there was always the threat that the same tactics that we used to make people question their reality could be used to make people question their their reality, reality. (laughs) but their own reality. (laughs) Right. And now we're here. Right. And now we're here. You know, as as Are You Serious said, Operation Mindfuck worked too well. Yeah. Right? The the initial destabilization of Abby Hoffman and Paul Krasner and those folks. But I don't know what we do with that now. Well, that's the thing. I was going to ask you that because I wanted you to like come (laughs) here to Queens and teach tactical media to look at the question of what the fuck do we do now? But then I look at your show and I cry at the pig and I realize that's what we do. That's what we do. This is work. Your work, it draws on the humanity. It does not destabilizing. It's grounding. It's upsetting sometimes, but it's... Back to the earth and the fire and the clay and the, I mean. Yeah, I mean, we have to find, somehow find ways to come back together. Because now we're on this trajectory where we're just getting more and more and more splintered off from each other into these smaller and smaller groups. And that's not going to lead anywhere good. So we really need to find ways to have experiences that that bring us together and that transcend those ever smaller groups. Do you do things? Do I? I don't do things. (laughs) (laughs) 
You work I alone want to do your, things. You work alone in your lab. You're, well, you're going to do, I mean, there's going to be an opera in San Francisco. When is that totally. happening? Yes, do we know exactly. the dates? So the, the live opera will be March 7th and 8th at the Exploratorium. At the Exploratorium in San Francisco. Live mm-hmm. opera. Live opera. So that's human beings on a stage well, together. Exactly. Four singers will be there. I'll be there. An audience of people in lecture chairs. performance. Exactly. We'll have like 100 <laughs> people in the audience. You know, we'll have some sculptures there <laughs> that enter in, and we'll have live heart cells that also perform in the opera. <laughs> and yeah, and we'll have a real in-person experience, and then we'll have a discussion afterward, like a kind of TBD, but some kind of discussion with either a scientist or a theorist who's relevant to the the topics, and people can ask questions. And and I think it it is true. I mean, that's the kind of experience that is very intensely emotional. I mean, I think it will be that we'll go through together and come out and and maybe be able to talk together about what is actually the right thing to do. I'm convinced there's a solution An unlimited supply for We have to ask society whether they like it or not. Compare the risk with the benefit. The opera started with these Zoom interviews that I started doing. So it was COVID. Normally, I'd like to work hands-on in the lab, but I couldn't get anywhere. I could basically not leave the apartment as all of us. And so I started contacting scientists and setting up these Zoom calls and recording them. And I just found I was having really, really compelling talks. I was so impressed by the the language, the choice of words that people were making, the zooarchaeologists, the geneticists, et cetera. And so I was really drawn into these these dramatic phrasings. Like what? Like there's a guilt, there's a betrayal. Involved in the the fundamental aspect of the human-pig relationship, for example, that came from the zoo archaeologist that I talked to. And he said that. He said that. He said (laughs) that. So every word, pretty much, with the exception of maybe like, I don't know, two sentences, everything else is from the words of the scientists or of the archaeologists themselves. Thinking deeply and meta about what it is they're doing. Exactly. Exactly. And then I took those words and put them into these structures that then became a libretto that then I handed to Bethany Barrett, composer who's based in Berlin, and she does a lot of analog synth work. And she started working with singers there, and they kind of, I think, through somewhat like a semi-improvised structure, came up with the, the music. And it ends up, I mean, it ends up sounding both angelic and demonic at the same time. I think that's a great compliment. I think Bethany would really love that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what I wanted with the film was, I mean, first of all, I wanted to do a complex thing where we see the argument for and against the technology. And then I also wanted us to feel multiple things. I mean, to have moments that were funny because the people were also humorous. You know, yeah. some of the people that I talked to, I mean, they were, they like genuinely would make me laugh. But also that we can feel the drama and feel the sadness, all of those things together. So I, I hope that the music moves between, like carries us on this journey through different emotions. Yeah. And it's the other great thing about music like that. It's so embodied. You can sense when you listen to it you can sense the bodies that are making the sounds mm. you know as opposed to just the uh, the synthesizers or the right. the things it's very um you know there's that that choral music yeah. almost there's that beethoveny there is a yeah you know, i mean there's there is a chorus i mean there are choral moments right yeah. and then it becomes this sort of greek chorus conscience over the pigs of like what are you doing and then and the, within the words yeah. themselves you know is this cruel what is, yeah, yeah. It's nice, though, but that's the, um, it's not just evocative, but it's retrieving our sort of ethical, moral constitution to it. Yeah, yeah. I was so glad that I was able to pull that out from their own words 
You know, so it's not just me having commentary, although there is a bit of this kind of narrator character that comes in. But it isn't that the narrator character is the only one bringing some kind of reflection or something like that. I mean, it's really coming from the people themselves. It's self-judgment. It's yeah. not... Uh, yeah. You hear the heart, like the surgeon, Bruno Reichardt, who performed the first successful heart transplant in, in Germany and Europe. From pig to human, meaning, yeah. Well, he actually performed the first heart transplant ever. Oh, really? Human to human. Human to human. Exactly. So he's been around. Yeah. <laughs> he's been around for a while. So he's a very renowned surgeon, but he's also involved with the xenotransplantation research now. And you hear him say, we have to ask society whether they want it or not. Compare the risks with the benefits, which is really what you would just hope that everyone involved in any kind of new technology would think. Yeah. Before putting the cookie in the web browser or whatever. Do we want this? Do we want this? It's just such a a strikingly humane attitude to have. Right. Well, it's the Neil Postman question, you know? It's like, what problem is this solving, you know? And what problems will it create? Yeah. You know, not that you can predict it always, but at least you can start to ask and be open to... And people have such interesting thoughts about it. I mean, and that's the point about creating a work that creates conversation, because it's not like I have the answers. I mean, I spent a while researching this, so I think I know more about it probably than a lot of people. But in terms of making the assessment about whether it's ethical or not, I think that's a very broad conversation that we need to have with larger society. And so in working on this project, it's been so interesting for me to just hear what other people think. And after they go through the experience of watching the film, of course, for most people, that is an emotional experience, and they come out questioning whether it's right or not. But then how do they move forward with that? Because definitely some people are big proponents of it, and they think it's fantastic that it's becoming possible. And that's totally understandable. You know, it can solve the need for a shortage of organs, save human lives. I mean, that's clearly very... Easy to relate to and sympathize with that perspective as well as the people who are feeling like it is exploitative and that the the pig doesn't have agency. Mm. And so one of the most interesting responses that I've heard so far was when I spoke with a group of people who were studying transplantation and several of them were organ recipients, so people who that had mm. undergone an organ transplant. And what this woman said to me was, that she thought that it was not right to have the xenotransplantation. And the reason why was that for her, receiving the organ that she did was a gift. And she saw that as this tremendous gift that this other person had granted to her. But that that, of course, requires agency. Mm. You can't give a gift without having the agency to decide not to give the gift. And so she felt that, that she wouldn't want an organ from any entity that had not made the choice. Right. And the animal just can't. No. Yeah, that's interesting. For me, the question of technology right now, especially as we're on, it seems to be at the brink of whatever, you know, both health and, and, and climate apocalypses, you know, do we not need Monsanto like that? The only way out is through, you know, we made our deal with the, with the tech devil or whatever it is, we got to keep going. And again, what the piece seems to suggest, what your work seems to suggest is if we do need to go through, if we do need to push through, we have to at least keep returning. In other words, we've got to reintegrate the circular back into this mm-hmm. into this line, at mm-hmm. least as a way, you know, it's rituals like that that allow us the pause to evaluate, you know, yeah, <laughs> just that moment. Yeah, and to keep these very long histories, I mean, to be informed of history and, and pull these long histories, I mean, in addition to the shorter histories, into our thinking about the things. Yeah, and it is funny. Once you see those long histories, you realize how short the short histories are. Yeah. It's like, you know, Columbus, that's a few generations back. That's nothing. Yeah, you compared know, to five million years of Boris. Right, <laughs> right. Our sisters, our brothers, mm-hmm. brothers and sisters. <laughs> you know, that's the team human has to really open up to team earthling. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and, and team pig. Team pig. I know I'm on team pig <laughs> and I always will be. Well, thank you. Thank you for being on team pig and team human <laughs> and team earthling and team earth. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's always a pleasure. In a-
And thank you for being on Team Human. You can find out more about Heather Dewey Hagborg at deweyhagborg.com or check out the links on our show notes or at teamhuman.fm where you can also become a supporting member of the team. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.